Okay, well, every blessing to you all, and welcome back to my open air pulpit. A few nights ago, I sat down in preparation to make today's message, which I want to call Jesus, Jeremiah, Jehovah. And I thought to myself, why not dig out my old Bible, which I used to use at the open air pulpit. And some of you may well remember this great old Bible, which I got in 2005, because I've got a lot of notes in this old Bible. And some of these notes I haven't even preached on. So I thought what I would do today, Lord willing, is read through many passages that the book of Jeremiah and also have a quick uh, look at Hebrews. There were some verses that I was unable to look at last time and hopefully get a message out of today's attempt from the open air pulpit to do just that. It's always a blessing for me to come up here and speak to you all. And it's a very beautiful day today for the middle of uh, March. I think it's fair to say that spring is very much on the horizon. In fact, I'll just jump out of camera shot very briefly before I return to you all and allow you to look at this glorious backdrop, which as far as I know, I haven't filmed from before. Of course, I have made many videos over the years from this spot referred to as the open air pulpit, but I haven't stood here before, up until, or right up until now. So I thought I would just allow you to take a look. And when I conclude this message, I will show you what it looks like and give you an idea as to just how high up I actually am. Please go to Jeremiah chapter two and let's look at some verses which I marked up, probably 2006, 2007, and see what the scripture shows us from Jeremiah chapter 2. Look at verse 22, please. For though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith the Lord God. You can wash yourself as much as you want, you can get baptized as often as you want, but it won't save you. And I've heard of people over the years that have been baptized many times by different church groups, hoping to be saved, wanting to be in fellowship with the Lord. You're not saved by being baptized. The Apostle Paul would say how Christ hadn't sent him to baptize, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I think it's verse 17 from memory, but to preach, but to preach, but to preach the gospel. Why? Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, you are saved by believing, you are saved by receiving, and then you get baptized. But that won't save you. And I remember many years ago when I first got saved, speaking to a nice couple, saved couple, and the lady said to me that she had some kind of phobia when it came to water, and she couldn't bear the idea of being put into water and she said to me how she had spoken to her pastor and he correctly uh, reassured her that being baptized couldn't save her, couldn't save anyone, and how you are expected to be baptized once you are saved. But again, such won't save you. And I thought, on the one hand, how sad it was to listen to this grown woman telling me, with her husband right beside uh, her and I, that she had a phobia when it came to being baptized. 
But when you read this piece of scripture straight away, you are struck with the fact that no work of any kind can save you. Though thou wash thee with nitre and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me. Original sin, saith the Lord God. So you can do as much as you want with the hope of being saved. You can join a church group with the hope of being saved and yet you won't save yourself. And every so often I think to myself this, when I watch Jehovah's Witnesses in my town, just going around, doing their thing, door to door, or standing on the street, giving out Watchtower magazines, why would such people do what they do? I mean, if there's no hell, and the JWs don't believe there is any hell, why would you do what you do? Why would you turn your back on your families. For the average Jehovah's Witness woman who becomes a witness, she normally comes in her 30s and 40s and she normally comes with a husband and children in tow. And many times her husband and her children don't follow her into the Kingdom Hall. And they are the first to suffer as a result of their mother, their wife, departing from them. She is now expected to go out onto the doors, door to door, or street work, up to 30 hours a week. And she neglects her husband, she neglects her family, because she's now down at the Kingdom Hall, sometimes five nights a week. She hopes that her works will earn favor with Jehovah, but such is impossible. Also, this piece of scripture needs to be read in conjunction with 1 Peter 3.21, which speaks about being baptized, but again, as such, or such, won't wash away your sins. You are saved by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, some years ago, I remember getting into dialogue with a particular gentleman who I thought was saved, and he was obsessed with water, and I mean like in a sense of being saved from one's sins, and he would uh, email me regularly, along with other people that he knew, and just lambasting such people, just uh, beseeching people to go out and be baptized. And I said to him, but such can't save you. And he said to me, well, if you're not baptized in water, you can't be saved. And I had to cut fellowship with him. Look at verse 34, please. Also in thy skirt is found the blood of the souls of the poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search, but upon all these. There's a picture to an abortion. The blood of the souls of the poor innocents. Also in thy skirts is found such. I have not found it by secret search, but upon all these. And I think this. When the Lord blows the final whistle, when time comes to an end, and Britain especially comes in remembrance of the Lord, and he decides to take time to judge uh, the UK, I think most Brits, from its conception to its conclusion, are going to be just lost. I don't think there are many saved people in Britain today, and I've long had this uh, belief that most Brits are not saved, most Brits don't want to be saved. Most Brits are quite happy not being saved, and therefore I think this, that when the final whistle is blown, and the Lord judges everyone, 
after he sends most Brits to hell, it will probably fall down to, or it will, it will uh, probably result when it comes to redemption or when it comes to those that will be saved from the UK, let me put it that way, it will probably fall to children that were aborted, children that died pre the age of accountability. And I think because heaven is this wonderful place that we speak a lot about, that we think a lot about, that we sing a lot about, I think heaven will be filled with children that were aborted, that died as a result of a car incident or a sickness or were murdered, what have you. But here they are called the innocents. 34, one more time. Also in thy skirts is found the blood of the souls of the poor innocents, which means just that, that at conception you have a human being living in your womb. I've not found it by secret search, but upon all these. And the more I read these verses, the more I think how imperative it is to get people saved. And I think this as well, that some of our brethren have ministries where they reach out to women not to have abortions. And I'm not against that. But I think to myself this, you've got, for the most part, unsaved women consulting unsaved doctors, consulting unsaved nurses, hoping to have an abortion, and you have saved people outside such places begging such people not to go through with an abortion. You've got the saved witnessing to the unsaved. You've got the saved pleading with the unsaved. I'm not against it, but my point is this. The world is the world. So where does the church come into this? It makes you think, doesn't it? Why not take the time to preach the gospel to such people? Chapter 3, uh, chapter 3, look at verse 2, please. Lift up thine eyes unto the high places, and see where thou hast not been lain with. In the ways hast thou sat for them as Arabian in the wilderness, and thou hast polluted the land with thy whoredoms and with thy wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withholden, and there hath been no latter rain. And thou hast a whore's forehead, thou refusest to be ashamed. If you watch the news, or if you read the newspapers, or if you have any interest in what goes on outside of your little world, you know that there are many wars that are being fought all over the world. There are people that are starving to death, people that are perishing physically and also eternally. And I think two things. Number one, I think this, that most of those countries are Islamic. And I think this, that when it comes to Islamic countries, could be Syria, could be uh, Bangladesh, it could be uh, Doha, it could be uh, Somalia. I think, where are all the Islamic countries? Where is Allah for such people? Why are Kafirs, why are non-Muslims being called upon to help such Islamic countries? But the reason why these countries suffer the way they do, number one, is because of sin. If you go to India, you will discover the River Ganges, a filthy river filled with dead animals. 
uh, dying animals, people's uh, waste, shall we say. And you have Indians, you have Sikhs that flock to such a place to pay homage to such idols. You see, in India, for them, animals are sacred beings, and there won't be any politician anywhere in India, Sikh, Hindu, or Islamic, that would dare speak out against such a foolish belief. And they are washing in the water, some are perhaps drinking of the water, and many people are becoming sick and even dying. So sin, famine, always points back to, or I should say a drought, always points back to sin. God's judgment on sin here, whereas hell will be God's judgment on sin hereafter. Still in chapter 3, verse 17, please. At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered unto it to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. Neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. So when the millennium finally begins, you will have the new earth given to the Jews, redeemed Jews, redeemed Israel, and they will use the temple which is spoken about from Revelation chapter 11. And as far as I can tell, that temple never gets destroyed. What is built in Revelation 11 seems to go on into the millennium. New Jerusalem, on the other hand, will be given to the church. Or put it this way, Jehovah Israel, Jesus New Jerusalem, Resurrection Israel, Rapture Church, Jehovah has a wife Israel, Jesus has a wife the body of Christ. New Jerusalem will be for the church and the new earth will be for the Jews. At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. Jerusalem, literal Jerusalem, and all the nations shall be gathered unto it. Starts in Matthew 25 and goes on into eternity. To the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem, neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of the evil heart. The main theme of the Bible, as has been said by far greater teachers than myself, is about a king and a kingdom. And for us, we are obviously very interested in the new birth, of course, having all of our past, present, and future sins forgiven, receiving a total unconditional forgiveness or a complete pardon for our sins. But as far as the Lord is concerned, the main theme of the scripture is a kingdom and a king concerning Jesus Christ, of course. 22. Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Behold, we come unto thee, for thou art the Lord our God. Backsliding in the scripture nearly always concerns Israel. Come back to me, backsliding people, and I will read some more verses shortly, which also look at Israel as a perpetual backslider. But technically speaking, doctrinally speaking, for the New Testament, for the church age, a backslider isn't really found, and yet, say people do backslide, you understand. 
But this will be the first of many calls from the Lord for Israel to do something. Return, ye backsliding children, Judah and Israel, and I will heal your backslidings. Now remember this as well, that Israel was God's elect nation. And if you speak to Calvinists, they believe this, that the Lord will choose him, a people throughout every generation, to save. And those people are obviously saved. Christ will die just for their own sins, and they become his elect people. Most Calvinists don't believe in the two natures of the believer either. And I made the case during my last message on betrayal that if you see someone who started out as a Christian and is no longer living as a Christian, and if you were to consult a Calvinist about such a party, they would say to you, well, they probably were never saved to begin with. Or if you speak to a non-Calvinist, they will say, well, he's probably lost his salvation. Both views, of course, are incorrect. Both views are wrong. But the point is this, for the Calvinist, there's no concept of the two natures in the believer. So it's very interesting to me when I read about Israel as the Lord's elect nation being referred to here as a backsliding people. On top of that, sinning willfully. And on top of that, the promise how the Lord will heal such people if they return to the Lord our God. It's fascinating. And the more I read the scriptures, the more I see the holiness of the Lord and the long-suffering of the Lord. Uh, chapter 4, chapter 4, look at verse 10, please. Then said I, our Lord God, surely thou hast greatly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying, You should have peace, whereas a soul, whereas a sword reacheth unto the soul. Jeremiah, a great type of Jesus. Jeremiah sent to the nations, as will Jesus during the millennium, although the nations will come seeking the king, you understand. But here, Jeremiah, a great type of Jesus, never married with children. Our Lord God, surely thou hast greatly deceived this people. Apostate, backsliding Israel, his elect people, and Jerusalem, saying, You shall have peace, whereas the sword reacheth unto the soul. It is true that on different occasions in the scriptures, the Lord would deceive people. And it speaks about such from Second Thessalonians chapter 2, how the Lord will pour out strong delusion upon those that live on the earth. And he does so because A, he is angry with them, and B, he knows through foreknowledge that they are not going to believe on him. And this is a frightening thought, isn't it? That people are going to be not, not only deceived by the devil, it says that from the book of Revelation, how he deceives the whole world. But on top of that, Jehovah is also going to deceive such people because they were never his to begin with. Chapter 5, uh, chapter 5, look at verse 20, please. Declare this in the house of Jacob and publish it in Judah, saying, Hear now this, O foolish people, and without understanding, which have eyes and see not, which have ears and hear not. Fear not me, saith the Lord. Will you not tremble at my presence, which have placed a sand for the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass it? 
and though the waves thereof toss themselves, yet can they not prevail, though they roar, yet can they not pass over it. O foolish people, O backsliding people, and without understanding, 21, which have eyes and see not, which have ears and hear not. And I made the case during my message some weeks ago now, referred to as the curse of Jesus, colon, why so many people don't get saved. And it goes back to Israel as God's elect nation living under a curse. Now Moses would speak about this back in the first five books of the Bible, especially Deuteronomy. And he would say how in the last days people will come along and draw people amongst, or people from amongst the children of Israel to become their own disciples. Paul would also preach such a message in the book of Acts. And that's why it's so important when you observe certain, certain groups, certain cults, certain sects going around trying to not get people saved, but to get proselytes, to try and get disciples to join their own system. And that's why it's always worth spending a few moments, if you can, with a Jehovah's Witness and asking them whether or not they are saved. In fact, a few weeks ago, I was on the streets of Wigan and this lady came over to me. I would say she's probably in her 70s. And uh, I gave her a tract and she said to me, thank you very much. I'm born again as well. And I said, wonderful. And she said to me, but I used to be a Jehovah's Witness. I thought this would be interesting. And she said to me how she'd been a witness for 20 years. And around the mid-1980s, she was going door to door, knocked on someone's door, and a gentleman opened the door, and he allowed her to give her spiel. They work from a script, you understand. And he said to her, well, can I ask you a question? You spent the last 10 minutes telling me all about your religion, telling me about your beliefs. What has Jesus done for you? And she said to me that that sort of a question completely threw her. And she couldn't think how to respond to him. And she started to fumble with her watchtower or her New World translation, a blasphemous translation, incidentally, put out by an excommunicated uh, Catholic who was involved with the occult, a priest, no less. And she was fumbling with her Bible, like I say, or her watchtower, or perhaps both, trying to think how to respond to such a simple question. What has Jesus done for you? And she said she went home and she couldn't get that out of her mind. And she realized soon afterwards that she wasn't saved, that she didn't know Jesus. In fact, she realized that for 20 years, going door to door, speaking to people about Jehovah, which incidentally is a transliteration, that she didn't even know him. She knew of him but she didn't know him personally. And this is where the Bible-believing Christian is able to say with such confidence that we know Jesus Christ, that we know we are saved, that we know that the Scripture is the Word of God. But more importantly, as the Apostle Paul would say, how he knows us because we love him. Or we love him because he first loved us. But here Israel has eyes, physical eyes, but she couldn't see spiritually. She had ears, physical ears, but she couldn't hear spiritually. And Jesus Christ would quote this, and it was devastating. It was devastating because Christ's mission was to come to the children of Israel. He would preach to them, 
and yet for the most, they weren't interested, much like people today are not interested. Which goes back to my earlier thoughts, that when it comes to the final whistle being blown, when it comes to the final judgment taking place, I am convinced that most Brits are going to be just damned, and the Lord will have to save children, and he will save children because they are called the innocents, and I read it to you just a few moments ago. And heaven, as far as Britain is concerned, or Britain's contribution towards heaven, let me put it that way, heaven's occupants or Britain's contribution uh, towards heaven will be made up of children, infants, those that died pre the age of accountability, whereas the adults will go off into the lake of fire. Which have eyes and see not, which have ears and hear not. This also is picked up by Isaiah and Ezekiel. So, it is fair to say that the Jews are currently in unbelief. Paul says how Satan has blinded their minds through the light of the gospel. And Christ, as I say, would quote this piece of scripture because they were under the judgment of Jehovah, going back to Jeremiah's time and before, and also under a satanic curse as well because they wanted to be deceived. They wanted to believe a lie, which also feeds into evolution. Still in chapter 5, chapter 5, look at verse 29, please. Shall I not visit for these things, saith the Lord? Shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? Here, Jehovah is making it very clear to the Jews that he won't sit back forever. Now, it's like this. If you are a landlord and you own your own property, you have tenants that live in your property. And therefore, as the landlord of that property, should you want to evict your tenants, you have the right to do so. Should you want to knock your building down or uh, expand your building, like put a conservatory up or perhaps give it a fresh coat of paint or maybe knock some walls down, whatever it comes or whatever it comes down to, whatever you want to do, that is your prerogative. That's your prerogative because it's your property. You are the landowner. You are the landlord. Well, the Lord is the same. This is his world. He made this world. He runs it 24-7. Yes, Satan is the god of this world in a spiritual sense, but Satan works by the permissive will of the Lord. In other words, Satan can't do what the Lord won't allow him to do, which is a great thing to understand. You see, if you're saved, and you are really going through it at the moment, the chances are that you are doing so because the Lord has allowed you to go through such, and he has allowed the devil to work you over. Don't be overly shocked if certain things go against you. The Lord is sovereign, and like I say, he allows the devil to do what he does. Shall I not visit for these things, saith the Lord? You mean to tell me, Israel, that you can do what you will? You can kill people, you can slander my prophets and prophetically put my saviour, my son, to death and not expect me to respond? That's the kind of language. This is my earth, you see. I own the keys to your house. I'm your landlord. Shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? A wonderful thing and horrible thing is committed in the land. It's almost like a uh, contradiction there. A wonderful and horrible thing 
is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means. And my people love to have it, and my people love to have it so. And what will you do in the end thereof? There's an old line in a particular song which comes to my mind how people like to believe the deceptive lie. People like to be deceived. And the problem with being deceived is that you don't know that you are deceived, and on top of that, you don't care that you're deceived, which goes back to false religions. And I've made this case over the last few uh, videos such as this, and walking, talking pulpits, that if something works for a person, like being a member of the Jehovah's Witnesses, if it works for them, or like being a Muslim, for example, or being a Freemason, perhaps, they will stick with it, even though it's not correct, even though it's been shown to be false. If it works for them, they will stick with it. A wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets, Old Testament, prophesy falsely, feeding into teachers today. And the priests bear all by their means. Now, we have no priests today. For those of us which are saved, we are a royal priesthood. But here you've got literal priests, could be apostate Levites, could be uh, just people in general that have fallen foul of the Lord, and as such they are now enemies of the Lord. And my people, God's elect nation, love to have it so. And what will you do in the end thereof? One of the reasons why Jeremiah's ministry, uh, Jeremiah's ministry was so difficult, like Jesus, was down to the fact that the rulers were not only against Jehovah, not only against Jeremiah, but they would speak lies. They would predict truths from their own hearts, which would deceive people, like Jim Jones would do, like uh, David Kresh would do like Joseph Smith would do, like Judge Rutherford would do. But here, Israel is spoken of as being a nation that loves sin and lies, and as such is going to go into captivity. Chapter 6, chapter 6, look at verse 13, please. For from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. You've got an almost entire generation of Jews that are on the wrong side of Jehovah, that are embracing this worldview, this mindset, which goes completely contrary to Jehovah's plan for Israel. And it goes back to this, that one of the reasons why Jehovah chose the Jews to be his people not only was due to the fact that they were the least amongst the nations, Deuteronomy chapter 7, but how he wanted them to reach out to the Gentiles and just brag, just boast about Jehovah's goodness. And yet, I've been saved 15 years, and even before I was saved, I have known Jews at different stages of my life. And never once, never once has a Jew ever said to me, do you know Jehovah? Do you know this great God that we, say, that we serve? 
this great God that chose our people thousands of years ago, this great God that allowed us to be a part of his covenant. Do you know him? They are miserable when it comes to sharing his glory. They don't go around bragging about him, boasting about him, and yet they are his people. And this reminds me of an incident when I was growing up. We had a family that lived opposite us, Plymouth Brethren, exclusive Plymouth Brethren, five-point Calvinists, hyper-Calvinists, the worst type of Christian that you'll ever meet. And the women would wear head, uh, would wear head coverings all the time, and the men would be very uh, doer kind of people, very sort of upright, very serious. And one occasion, I can still remember it now, I was maybe 10, 11, 12, our car wouldn't start. And Patrick went over the road and said to one of the men, this great Christian man, <laughs> chosen frozen, right? <laughs> he said, can I borrow one of your jump leads? Or do you have, a, uh, do you have any uh, jump leads for me to use to jumpstart my car? It's the middle of winter, I've got to get up and out. And this guy just looked at him, just looked at him like he was scum, like he was nothing. And it's only now that I'm saved, and looking back on that event, that I can see that this guy also was a failure. He would have said to us that he was a Christian. He would have said to us that he knew the Lord Jesus, and yet by his works, he denied him. There was no attempt by himself or his wife or his children, which at that time were the same age as I was, to witness to any of us. And yet such people believe in hell, right? But there was no interest. It was a private religion, you see. In his mind, and the mind of his family, and I know this because I've spoken to these people since getting saved, that in their mind, if you don't dress like them, if you don't speak like them, if you don't operate like them, then you're not one of them, which means this, you're not saved. You see, for them, they are very uh, visual. They will judge you by how you look. Never judge a book by its cover. And this is what happens. People will make a judgment. And I've been guilty of this over the years. I've been on street corners and I've seen people walking towards me and I've said to myself this, he won't take a tract or she won't take a tract and I've gone to offer the tract anyway expecting to have it rejected only to be proven wrong. <laughs> and I've had other people that I've said to myself, he will take it, she will take it, they will take it, and they just walk straight past me. Never judge a book by its cover. But Israel, as a people, the Jews as a race, have miserably failed Jehovah. They have a private religion. They stay in their own communities, they don't go outside of their own communities, they marry within their own communities, they work within their own communities, and yet Jesus would say, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And who knows, maybe had that chap many years ago when I was 10, 11, 12, had he witnessed to Patrick at that time, had he said to Patrick, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Or can I give you a tract? Or do you have a Bible? Who knows, maybe Patrick could have got saved many years earlier. Maybe I could have got saved. 
many years earlier. But there was no attempt made by such an exclusive uh, hyper-Calvinist Plymouth Brethren family. Very self-righteous, very legalistic. Like I say, from the outside, they all dressed very immaculately. The women wore head coverings, which incidentally is not necessary. Women are only expected to cover their heads when they break bread, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and men are not uh, permitted to wear head coverings when they break bread, but once the breaking of the bread has finished, once the uh, men and women have left the place of worship, women are not expected to remain with a head covering on. And men that wear head coverings outside of their uh, place of worship after the breaking of bread haven't sinned. People need to get that straight. But again, it goes back to people being very visual, people trying to make a decision based on how people live or how they dress to be more precise. 13, and I will move on, from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. It's obvious to me, this is probably one of the main reasons why Jesus Christ, when he came the first time, didn't want someone from organized religion to proclaim his arrival. He would choose John the Baptist, who also wasn't part of organized religion. Chapter 6, chapter 6, look at verse 17, please. Also I set watchmen over you, saying, Hearken to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not hearken. God's select nation, God's chosen nation, God's elect chosen nation, using free will. I set watchmen over you, prophets, holy men, saying, hearken to the sound of the trumpet. Spiritualize it to someone like myself today, repent, turn or burn. But they said, we will not hearken, not that we cannot hearken, but that we will not hearken. Free will, you see. Chapter 7, uh, chapter 7, look at verse 8. Behold, ye trust in lying words that cannot profit you trust in your church you trust in so-called visions for mary you trust in your priests and i remember many years ago speaking to a friend a catholic friend and witnessing to this friend and maybe 10 yards away was my old parish priest and i was trying to share the gospel with my friend at the time trying to explain the gospel and like i say just 10 yards from where i was standing was my old parish priest and he listened to every word i said and never once did he correct me never once did he confront me never once did he challenge me and i was witnessing for maybe five or six minutes trying to explain the gospel to my friend but to no avail. Behold, ye trust in lying words that cannot profit, like going to the Mass, like being baptized, like doing penance, like uh, participating in Lent, which is now upon us. Look at verse 16. Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up, cry nor prayer for them. 
neither make intercession to me. For I will not hear thee devastating. The Lord is saying this, Jeremiah, listen, don't even pray for these people. Now today, because we live under the uh, gospel, the grace of God, we can't go to this piece of scripture and apply it doctrinally. Because we don't know who will be saved. We don't know where people are when it comes to their relationship with the Lord. That's why it's also very difficult and problematic, not to mention reckless, when it comes to judging a person's salvation. No two people are going to be the same. No two people are going to produce the, sa this, the uh, same amount of fruit. No two people are going to be the same when it comes to secular affairs or sacred affairs. No two people are going to be the same in any walk of life. So don't be too quick to judge a person's salvation. But here, therefore pray not thou for this people. In the context, it's going to be uh, unbelieving Israel about to go into uh, Babylon. Neither lift up crying or prayer for them. Neither make intercession to me. Why? For I will not hear thee. Jeremiah, don't waste your time. Jeremiah, don't cry over such people. And I will say this, that as far as I can understand from Scripture, what we don't want to do as saved people is cast our pearls before swine. What we don't want to do as saved people is go over the same old ground with the same people. Before I got saved, to the best of my knowledge, as I stand here this morning, as a saved sinner for 15 years now, no one ever came into my world, no one ever came over to me on the streets or door to door and asked me whether or not I was saved. Once I got saved, I would obviously come into contact with religious groups, mainly due to the fact that I was on the street sharing the gospel. But since I've been saved, no one's ever come to my house, knocked on my door, and said to me, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you born again? I've been all over the UK, and I've met a lot of people, and again, to the best of my knowledge, as I stand this morning, I can't think of anyone pre my days as a saved sinner, or post my days, or since I became a saved sinner, has anyone ever come into contact with me and shared the gospel with me? I remember when I first got saved, one of our friends was married to an unsaved party and they wanted their unsaved party, their unsaved spouse, to be saved. Obviously, it's kind of normal. And this friend of ours took their unsaved spouse to many meetings. And I thought about this a few nights ago that within a three-month period of this friend of ours getting saved, they had taken their unsaved spouse to maybe three or four meetings. Their unsaved spouse had been witnessed to by maybe 35 people. That's right, 35 people, and yet still didn't want to receive the gospel. But no one ever spoke to me before I was saved. I didn't get three people <laughs> speak to me before I was saved, and yet this person, I can still see this person now, very smug, very arrogant, very dismissive, and yet had been given the opportunity to hear the gospel by, and I mean this, 35 people over a three-month period, and it made no difference. And I think some of these people who have heard the gospel, like many times, and still reject it, are going to be 
awfully damned, awfully judged at the great white throne judgment. Chapter 7, chapter 7, look at verse 25, please. Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day, I've even sent unto you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they hearken not unto me, nor inclined their ear, but hardened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. You are stiff-necked people. And again, this goes back to Israel being God's elect nation, which according to Calvinists, Christ died for. And yet here, they haven't hearkened unto the Lord. They've clinged to their sin nature. They haven't uh, repented. They have strayed further from Jehovah. Since the day that your fathers, all of you, came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day, excluding Moses, Miriam, Aaron, Joshua, Caleb, and some others, of course, I've even sent unto you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them, and sending them, and sending them, excuse me. Jesus, of course, would do the same. He was a very busy man. He would preach probably 12 hours a day. He would crisscross Israel, and he would come to spots such as this and preach to 5,000, 15,000, 20,000 people. And yet, ask a Calvinist, why would he bother if they weren't chosen before the foundation of the world to begin with? Why would Jehovah bother with the Jews if they couldn't be saved? If they were never uh, marked out for salvation to begin with? 26, yet they hearken not unto me, nor inclined their ear, but hardened their neck, they did worse than their fathers. This is a continual theme throughout the scripture. 31, and they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my heart. There was a guy called Arthur Pink some years ago who wrote a book called The Sovereignty of God, and he said this, that God not only knew that Adam would sin before he fell, which of course is correct, but how he ordained Adam to fall before he fell. And John Calvin also used the same type of language which puts sin at the door of the Lord, which means if you take it to its logical conclusion, the Lord is the author of sin. Whatever goes wrong in this world is down to the Lord. That's the Calvinist view. That's an honest Calvinist's understanding of why things go the way they go. But here, to burn their sons and their daughters, 31, in the fire, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my heart. This was never the Lord's will. He didn't want his uh, elect people to do such things. Listen, when you die and you stand before the Lord, you go to hell, not because... Uh, Christ didn't die for you, but because you didn't want him to die for you. You go to hell because you didn't want to believe. And once you arrive in hell, then you pay for your sins. But you go to hell because you want to go to hell. Christ has died for you. Christ has made it possible for everyone, and I mean everyone, to be saved. 
But for most people, they don't want to be saved. And that's why they go to hell. But the Lord never gave up on Israel. 25, 26, 27, and yet 31, they are burning their sons and their daughters in the fire. And that's one of the reasons why the Lord wiped out so many people back in the Old Testament. I mean, what else could he do? Let's say you are a landlord. Let's go back to this analogy one more time. And you own a house, and you've got eight tenants. And seven of those, ten uh, seven of those tenants are not paying their rent. Seven of those tenants are bad tenants. What do you do? Do you just put up with such indefinitely? Of course you don't. You issue them with an eviction notice, and if they refuse to go, you send the bailiffs in, and they are forced to go. And no one turns around and says, what a bad landlord. They expect the landlord to do such a thing. Well, the same is true of the Lord. He won't sit back indefinitely and allow people to kill their children, like here, or abort their children, like from chapter 2, or blaspheme him and just completely disregard his uh, call to repent. He made this world for a purpose, and Revelation says it was made for his glory. And yes, the Lord is a gentleman, and he's long-suffering, but don't abuse it. Eight. 10, therefore will I give their wives unto others, and the fields to them that shall inherit them. For every one from the least even unto the greatest is given to covetousness. From the prophet even unto the priest, every one dealeth falsely. What you see externally many times isn't the whole picture. Going back to that family that lived opposite me when I was growing up. This very upright, uh, middle class, exclusive, Brethren, hyper-Calvinist family, dressing very conservatively, and yet wouldn't give you the time of day. Wouldn't once go door to door with tracks. Wouldn't once witness to my family or other families in my street about the Lord Jesus Christ. For them and to them, their religion was a private religion, going back to the Jews, not just since their conception, but right up until the present. And I've seen these Jews on the streets in Manchester and Salford and elsewhere. They walk straight past us. They don't stop and talk. They don't say, hey guys, I see you are giving out tracts, or I see you are speaking about the one true eternal God. They walk straight past us. They have no interest. And this is what is being spoken of from chapter 8, verse 10. The greatest is given to covetousness from the priest, even unto the prophet, everyone dealeth falsely. Devastating. And yet this is what happens when people are left to their own devices. Chapter 9, uh, chapter 9, look at verse, uh, actually make it 20, uh, excuse me, uh, chapter 8, chapter 8, look at uh, 21. For the hurts of the daughter of my people are my hurts. I am black. Astonishment hath taken hold on me. Pain equals sin, which equals blackness. Blackness in the scripture is a picture of sin. Red is a picture of sin. Or red is a picture of judgment. So black 
would be a picture of darkness, picturing sin, and white would be a picture of purity, picturing uh, forgiveness. But red, of course, is a picture of the blood. Could be the blood of Christ, could be your own blood. But here, 8.21, For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I am black, astonishment hath taken hold on me. This is the Lord speaking. And this is why I think, for those of us which are saved, it's always helpful to really hold up the name of Jesus, to really raise uh, his name in the streets, to just glorify him, to just honor him. Sometimes just a verse will really glorify him. I remember doing some street work in Leeds some years ago, and we had this huge banner, which some of you may remember, and uh, our good friends from uh, Singapore were there, and our good brother from Singapore held this huge banner, like five foot, massive banner, and it, as he was holding it, I was preaching about the name of Jesus Christ, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue would confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And I was going over the same scripture time after time, and others, other scriptures of course, you understand, but I was wanting to hold up the name of Jesus. We had uh, a clip sent to us from a friend in America a few days ago, and this brother was preaching against some uh, black Hebrewites, a nasty, piece of, uh, na nasty group of people, these black Hebrewites, they are called a synagogue of Satan from the book of Revelation. They're not Jews, they're Gentiles. And watching this group of maybe seven or eight gentlemen, all black, all very anti-white, making quite a commotion. And this other guy came out of nowhere. And I'm told by the friend that sent this to us that he's a good man. And he was saying, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. And I watched that for maybe 30 seconds, and I thought to myself, why does he keep saying that? And it dawned on me, because that's what this is all about. The blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. And it was quite powerful to watch. This godly black man preaching against a load of black Hebrewites, false individuals, blaspheming Jehovah, hating white people, which if it was the other way around, you'd never be the end of it, would you? And this brave, lone, black brother preaching against such a group. The blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. What has the blood done for you? What has Jesus done for you? Do you know Jesus? Do you love the blood? Do you ever preach about the blood, the precious blood of the Lamb? For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt, Jehovah speaking. I am black. You hurt him, or you hurt one of his children, you hurt him. And if you hurt him, watch out, look out, he will tear to pieces. Astonishment hath taken hold on me. Chapter 9, chapter 9, look at verse 19 please. For a voice of wailing is heard out of Zion. How are we spoiled? We are greatly confounded. Because we have forsaken the land, because our dwellings have cast us out, Zion. Are you a Zionist? Are you a proud Zionist? If you're not, something's wrong with you. Do you stand with Israel? Do you love the Jews? Do you defend them? Do you defend their right to the land of Israel? 
do you preach the premillennial return and rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you don't, maybe you're not saved. Or perhaps you are out of fellowship with the Lord. Or perhaps you are ignorant of Scripture. Look at 20. You hear the word of the Lord, O ye women, and let your ear receive the word of her mouth, or the word of his mouth, excuse me, and teach your daughters wailing, and every one her neighbor lamentation. You've got two things here. You've got apostasy, absolutely uh, at an unprecedented level, and here the Lord is switching to women. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O ye women, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth, and teach your daughters wailing, and every one her neighbor lamentation. For death has come up into our windows, and has entered into our palaces, to cut off the children from without, and the young men from the streets. When you see women preaching on the streets, when you see women teaching online, when you see women dominating churches or dominating their husbands, you are dealing with feminists, you are dealing with rebellious women. Women were never chosen to be frontline servants for the Lord. They can give out tracts, of course. They can speak to people, of course. They can share their testimonies with people, of course. They can do things that men cannot do. But women as street preachers, women as evangelists, women as pastors, is out. And here you've got women about to be called upon because the men are spineless. 22. Speak. Thus saith the Lord, even the carcasses of men shall fall as dung upon the open field, and as a handful after the harvestmen, and none shall gather them. So these verses point to women being uh, raised up to preach to apostate Jews. And yes, if men won't do the work that they should do, the Lord will raise them up. But that happens in spite of uh, women, not because of women. It has never been the Lord's will for women to be in frontline ministry. And that's why I'm very critical when I see women that uh, have teaching ministries. It has never been acceptable. Still in chapter, uh, actually chapter 10, go to chapter 10, chapter 10, look at verse 5, please. They are upright as a palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be born, because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither also is it in them to do good. Don't fear false gods. Don't fear false prophets. Don't fear false teachers. <coughs> Don't fear anyone. The fear of man bringeth a snare, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and, the, and those who put their faith or those who put their trust in the Lord shall be made safe. Don't fear what people say or do. I've been saved long enough now to remember all this talk about the Y2K bug, which didn't happen, and people saying how the uh, stock markets would crash, how the dollar would plunge, how sterling would uh, just collapse. It hasn't happened, and it won't happen. Yes, the sterling, sterling will go up and down, 
with Brexit, and yes, the dollar will go up and down with the new president, but it won't crash. Mark my words, the dollar won't crash. Sterling won't crash. The earth isn't just going to burn up tomorrow. You've got church age, you've got rapture, maybe 10, 15, 20 years, and then, perhaps, the tribulation begins. And then at the end of the tribulation, you have uh, Armageddon, and then you've got the uh, millennial reign, and then we go into eternity. You see, things have to happen in a particular order. So don't be fearful of those that do evil, and also such are not able to do good either, which also goes back to a good tree bringing forth good fruits and a bad tree bringing, bringing forth uh, bad fruit. Uh, still in chapter 10, look at 25, please. Pour out your fury upon the heathen that know thee not, and upon the families that call not on thy name, for they have eaten up Jacob and devoured him and consumed him, and have made his habitation desolate. Jeremiah was a good man. Jeremiah was a holy man. But Jeremiah, as a good man with two natures, no doubt, wanted vengeance. He wanted the Lord to destroy his enemies, like John uh, and James, the sons of thunder, would want the Lord to do, the sons of Zebedee. And Christ would have to clip their wings Christ would say how he hadn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save their lives. And that's why it's always worth reminding our Calvinist friends how Calvin's reign was unscriptural. Putting people to death, people that rejected the Trinity, people that rejected this or that, yes, incorrect, of course, and servetists uh, did reject the Trinity, but would that be grounds to put a man to death? I'm not sure. I personally hold to the Trinity, but I wouldn't want to kill someone for not holding to such. Chapter 11, look at verse 9, please. And the Lord said unto me, A conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. A conspiracy. And it could just be that when Christ came the first time, he would clash many times with the religious leaders, and perhaps they had a conspiracy. Perhaps their goal had been all along to stand against this traveling rabbi, this man from Galilee. 10. They are turned back to the iniquity of their forefathers, which refused to hear my words. And they went after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. A covenant was given to, on the one hand, allow people to enter into a relationship with the covenant giver, and on the other hand, to show those that were keeping a covenant that there were rules to it. Go back again to the analogy of a landlord. You move into a property, he gives you keys to the property. And you think to yourself, wonderful, I am now a member or a tenant in this property. I have the keys to this property, yes, but there are rules that go along with those keys, you understand. And if you break the rules, you are censored. Or if you work for a company, and after several months, they want to appraise you. 
and they call you into the office and they say, uh, you've been here six months and we've been assessing you for six months, which is quite normal. And we want to spend some time now looking at how good you've been, try to help you with your weaknesses. They will appraise you. And if you fall foul, you will be asked to leave. In fact, I remember years ago, there was a guy at a place where I used to work and he was a very interesting character, slightly eccentric. And he had this great love for the theater. And near where I worked at the time, there was this building where they would put on all these shows and people go from all over London to visit such a place, operas, concerts, uh, magicians, musicians, all that kind of, kind of nonsense. And he would go in his lunch hour and he was only supposed to have an hour for his lunch. And he would spend the whole afternoon there. And I remember speaking to a friend of mine who knew this chap. And I said to uh, this friend of mine at the time, you know, what's happened with such and such? And uh, my friend said to me, well, he's been uh, censored. I said, why? Because he's taken three hour lunch breaks to go and see these concerts. And I think he was eventually uh, fired for doing such. But here, 11, nine, going down to 10, a conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They turn back to the iniquities of their forefathers, a bit like John 666, which refused to hear my words, free will, and they went after other gods to serve them. Not only was it imperative for Jews in the first century that believed on Jesus to stay with him, not only was it imperative on Jews in the first century to not go back to the temple, but it was also imperative on Jews in the first century that came to Jesus to stay with Jesus, not to go back to worship people such as Baal or others. And the pressure during the first century on believing Jews to leave Jesus and go back to the law or go back to Baal worship or go back to worshipping the Queen of Heaven was immense. And that's what Hebrews is all about. For if we sin willfully, children of Israel, after we, the children of Israel, have come to the knowledge of the truth, there made us no more sacrifice for sins, but a fearful, uh, but a fearful uh, falling of judgment, fire nation, which shall devour the adversaries, so on and so forth. That's a context to Hebrews, not people no longer going to church. In fact, most churches, I'll get back to this in a minute, would say this to you, that if you were a member of their church and went for a period of time and then stopped going, such a church would say, well, maybe such and such is a backslider. Maybe such and such was never saved to begin with. Or maybe such and such is just being discarded by the Lord. They make a judgment, you see. But what they don't know is that such a person may have gone to another church. Such a person may have moved to another state, another town, another city. Such a person may be worshipping on their own or with other people. Just because someone stops going to a church building doesn't mean they are no longer in fellowship with the Lord or are no longer saved or have lost their standing with the Lord or are somehow an apostate, a backslider. No, it may just be they've gone elsewhere. But nine, plans have been made to worship false gods. Anything or anyone that 
uh, takes up your time and anyone or anything that comes between you and the Lord is an idol. Uh, chapter 11, please, still in chapter 11, look at verse 19. But I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter, and I knew not that they had devised, devised it against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree which let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof, and let us cast him off from the land of the living, that his name may be no more remembered. They wanted to kill Jeremiah, they wanted to kill Jesus. But I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter. Christ, of course, is the Lamb of God. And I knew not that they had devised devices against me, oblivious to it, saying, Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof. Because Jeremiah is a picture of a good tree. Jesus is a picture of a good tree. A good tree brings forth good fruit. A bad tree brings forth bad fruit. And let us cut him off from the land of the living. Let it, let's shut him up. That's what they're saying. Let's silence him once and for all. That his name, his legacy, his memory may be no more remembered. But, O Lord of hosts, that judgest righteously, that tries the reins in the heart, let me see thy vengeance on them. For unto thee have I revealed my cause. When Stephen was about to be put to death, and he's the first martyr of the church, he would intercede on behalf of his murderers, including uh, Saul of Tarsus, of course, for the Lord to show mercy to such. He would also, he would, he would, uh, he would uh, almost use the same words that Jesus would use about the uh, people not being held accountable. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do, or for they don't know what they do. And you've got Stephen and Jesus very much in harmony with each other, both about to be martyred, both innocent people. Jesus prays for mercy uh, towards his uh, murderers, as does Stephen. But Jeremiah, Jeremiah is angry. Jeremiah is a good man. And I think Jeremiah, on many different points, or many different areas, different levels, Jeremiah, the more you assess him, Jeremiah, the more you think about him, can really relate to people like us. Just an ordinary guy, and he wants judgment, he wants vengeance, he wants the Lord to rain fire down from heaven like, again, these sons of Zebedee would want. Chapter 12, chapter 12, look at verse 15, please. And it shall come to pass, after that I have plucked them out, I will return, and have compassion on them, and will bring them again, every man to his heritage, and every man to his land. It's a good scripture for the rapture. And it shall come to pass, after that, I have plucked them out, I will return. I go to my father's house, I will prepare a place for you, and I will come again unto you. Slight abbreviation from uh, John 14. And have compassion on them, and will bring them again. End of the tribulation. Every man to his heritage, and every man to his land. To rule and reign with Christ, of course. And these verses all point to future events in the midst of all this wickedness, in the midst of all this apostasy, in the midst of such wickedness. You've got prophecies being made, predictions being offered, chances for restitution, and yet for so many people, for so many Jews, they will just pass it up. They will just discard it, much like people today. 
are very, uh, uh, in, very much inclined to do. 13.13 Then shalt thou say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings that sit upon David's throne, and the priests and the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. The picture, of course, is some kind of an orgy. And the Lord is going to gather all these people. They will be intoxicated, like you find over in Revelation. Intoxicated, thanks to the whore that sits on many mountains. A picture of Rome, of course. And afterwards they are going to be damned. Forever damned. Look at verse 17, please. But if you will not hear it, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride. And mine eye shall weep sore, and run down with tears, because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. And you can see why. He was a Jew. He was a good man. He was a complex man. He had two natures. He wanted his people to be restored. He wanted Jehovah to be glorified, um, honored. And at the same time, it broke his heart to see his people fighting against the Lord, and not only fighting against the Lord, but causing the Gentiles to blaspheme the Lord. 14.9 Why shouldest thou be as a man stoned, as a mighty man that cannot save? Yet thou, O Lord, art in the midst of us, and we are called by thy name, leave us not, Jehovah Jews, Christ Christians, O Lord, art in the midst of us. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. We are called by thy name, leave us not. Again, Jews, Jehovah, Christ, Christians. Still in chapter 14. Uh, chapter 14, look at verse 14, please. Then the Lord said unto me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither spake unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination, and a thing of naught, and the deceits of their hearts. You've got multiple false teachers that were preaching, during biblical times, that will be preaching during uh, New Testament times as well, that are preaching today. If you go online, there are probably thousands of people all over the world that have so-called prophetical ministries. They give visions, prophecies, they speak about their dreams. And many, many people are following such people. In fact, Ellen White, the leader of the Seventh-day Adventist movement, offered herself as a prophet, or prophetess, I should say. And yet what wasn't uh, particularly clear at the beginning of her ministry, quote-unquote, was how she was knocked on the head. She was uh, wounded in her head. She almost died. And we know, due to uh, reports and uh, research which has been done concerning people that take knocks to the head, that they're never the same. I knew a guy years ago who was cycling to work one morning and a bus hit him 
He fell off his bike, he bashed his head on the ground, was rushed to hospital, and his wife told me that when she got to the hospital, he was a changed man. His personality had changed, like straight away. Physically the same man, externally the same man, but she said his personality had changed. That knock to his head changed his personality, like Ellen White's would change her personality, and such would never be the same again. Look at verse 15, please. Therefore thus saith the Lord, concern the prophets that prophesy in my name, and I sent them not. Yet they say, sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine shall those prophets be consumed. So when people say they are a prophet, and they make predictions which don't come to pass, Obviously, they are liars, but based on this piece of scripture, which such people like to suggest is still for today, it's not doctrinally, but they think it is, according to this piece of scripture, the Lord is going to kill them. In fact, back in the Old Testament, other parts of the Old Testament, it was expected that the Jews would police themselves and parts of their uh, responsibilities would be to make sure that false prophets were either excluded from the camp of Israel or put to death. And yet there are people all over the world today that are lying, making false predictions. They are deceived and deceive themselves, or they are deceived and deceiving others and are not being rebuked. They don't even follow their own rules. Because like I say one more time, such people believe that the Old Testament is still for today, like all of it, and the New Testament is all for today, like doctrinally. I won't get into that now. It's another subject for another day. And yet when you put these verses to them, they don't want to receive it. They pick and choose which parts of Scripture they want. But here, the Lord says, death to the false prophets. Fifteen seventeen. So what do you do? 1517, well, this is what you perhaps will do. I sat not in the assembly of the mockers, nor rejoiced. I sat alone because of thy hand. Thou hast filled me with indignation. If you can't find people to break bread with, if you can't find like-minded people, if you can't find King James Bible-believing people, if you can't find once saved, always saved, if you can't find a good group of non-Calvinists, a good group of soul-winning individuals, a good group that don't hold to tongues being for the day, if you can't find anyone anywhere who stands for the truth, then perhaps you will follow Jeremiah's example. I sat not in the assembly of the mockers. I would no longer go to my local Catholic church. I would no longer go to my local Anglican church. I would no longer go to my local Baptist church. I would no longer go to my local Pentecostal church. You get the idea? Nor rejoiced. I won't even sing the, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the hymns that they sing. I won't even uh, turn up to be present. Because just by being there, you are condoning of such an abomination. I sat alone because of thy hand, for thou hast filled me with indignation. We call this separation. We call this abstaining from apostasy. 
And I think there are many people, maybe millions all over the world that are born again, that love the Lord, that love his word, that are trying to do something for him and yet are being pushed back by the charismatics perhaps or the prosperity people perhaps or the hyper-Calvinists, the Plymouth Brethren for example or Arminians or whoever, wherever and they don't fit in to such places and therefore they sit alone they won't be a part of such a system. When I first got saved, there was a church not far from my home, and never once did this church, a so-called Baptist church, ever come looking for me. Never once did such a church ever knock on my door. Maybe it's different for you. Maybe some of you people have had churches knocking on your doors for years. Maybe some of you people have had people lining up in the street to share the gospel with you, not me. And I saw this church near where I lived at the time when I first got saved, Baptist Church, like I say, and I thought somewhat foolishly and naively that perhaps there was some light in such a place. And I went along once, and I walked in, no one even looked at me. I sat down, and I knew within five seconds that such a place wasn't for me. The same dead spirit that was in that church was in my Catholic church that I'd been raised in, and I couldn't get out quick enough. Chapter 16, chapter 16, uh, look at verse 11, please. Then shalt thou say unto them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, saith the Lord, and have walked after other gods, and have served them, and have worshipped them, and have forsaken me, and have not kept my law, and you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, you walk after, or you walk everyone after the imagination of his evil heart, that they may not hearken unto me. Therefore will I cast you out of this land, into a land that ye know not. Neither ye, neither ye, nor your fathers, and there shall you serve other gods day and night, where I will not show you favor. You can't miss it, can you? You've got free will. God's elect nation being castigated, being challenged on the one hand to repent, and yet on the other hand being condemned. Time after time, they do worse than their fathers. 12, 11, they forsake Jehovah. Look at verse 5 from chapter 16, the middle part. For I have taken away my peace from this people. When the Lord takes his peace from you, you are just at your wit's end. When a person, lose, when a person uh, will lose their hope, or if you take hope from a person, it's just the same as uh, killing such a person. Once a person loses hope, once a person loses peace, they may as well be dead. Verse 5 from chapter 16. I'm going to read it in its entirety. For thus saith the Lord, Enter not into the house of mourning, neither go to lament nor, nor bemoan them. For I have taken away my peace from this people, saith the Lord. 
even loving kindness and mercies. They're going to go into Babylon. They're going to go into Iraq. It will happen. Once the Lord ordains something to happen, it will happen. There are some uh, accounts where the Lord would change his mind, like with David, who was about to be uh, handed over to Saul. King Saul, and he gets wind of that David, and he changes his plans, and he was able, he's able to uh, amend the Lord's foreknowledge of what was going to take place, the Lord's decree, if you will. But when the Lord decrees something such as this, when the Lord decides to do something such as this, there's no way back. 17.7, blessed is a man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. You can keep that for today. Blessed, happy is the man or woman that trusteth in the Lord. That's what got you saved. And whose hope the Lord is. Take hope away from someone, like I say, or deny someone hope. It's all over. But if you trust in him, if you believe on him, you are saved and you have hope. Hope which is unexplainable. Look at verse 9 from chapter 17, please. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Does that sound like you? I think most religious people, I think most saved people, if you were to really challenge them, would say to you that their hearts aren't desperately wicked, that they're pretty good people. In fact, I was sent a clip a few days ago of a street preacher somewhere in America, speaking to a group of children going into some convention. I'm not sure what it was all about. And there was this girl, about 11, with her mother and some other people. And he was going back and forth with her. And this little girl, 11 years old, very brave girl, very articulate, very uh, gracious, was explaining to this preacher how she was saved by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And she said to him, but I know I'm still a sinner. I still do this and I still do that. And I thought, yeah, she's right. And he said to her, well, what do you do? Can I ask what you do? And she said to him, well, I lie. I tell lies. And he said, why? And she said, well, and she gave some reasons as to why she would tell lies. And he said to her, well, the Bible says all lies are the part in the lake of fire. And I thought, you swine. I thought, you self-righteous swine, this little girl is about 11 years of age, very bright girl, you could, t you, know, you could tell by watching her, and she is offering her testimony, if you will, she's explaining her account of being saved, and this great preacher, this very bold chap, grown man, maybe in his 30s or 40s, starts to take her apart. I thought, what a brave man you are, but you wouldn't go outside the mosque, would you? and take those guys on. You take on this little girl, 11 years of age, you take on some of her friends who were standing next to her, and her mother was biting her tongue, wanting to get involved. And I watched maybe 20 seconds of that interaction. I couldn't watch it any longer. And I thought this, the preacher should have known better. He should have said, well, she's only a child, and she may not have all of her theology correct, but to go to Revelation 21, all eyes have the parts in the lake of fire, which isn't speaking about Christians, it's speaking about sinners. You see, when the Lord judges a saved person, he judges such as a son, a son of God. But when he judges a sinner, he judges such as a sinner. 
And this self-righteous preacher couldn't delineate between being saved and judged as a son or being damned and judged as a sinner. Revelation 21, incidentally, is aimed at those that don't get saved, those that don't want to get saved, and therefore are judged for their sins. They're going to pay for their sins in hell. You cannot go to Revelation 21 and put that doctrinally on a saved person. And I'm afraid, and I'll say this one more time, that most street preachers, most American street preachers, most British street preachers, believe that you can lose your salvation, don't understand the two natures of the believer, and also, to some extent, put works into the equation when it comes to being saved. They can't understand grace, they won't receive grace. They are self-righteous Pharisees. They are a disgrace, quite honestly, to the body of Christ. But I do believe, one more time, that if you were to ask such people, say people, whether or not their heart is deceitful above all things, they would say, absolutely not. I'm a good man. I'm a good woman. And desperately wicked. Not me, they would say. Who can know it? When you get saved, yes, you are saved. Yes, you are pardoned. Yes, you are adopted into the family of God. But you're still a sinner. You are still a sinner. And if you don't believe me, just ask your wife. Just ask your husband. Ask your children how you're doing. And they will tell you straight away just how you are doing. But it goes back to being deceived. Those in Jeremiah's day were deceived. Those in Jeremiah's day wanted to be deceived. And such people are almost impossible to get saved. 18.8 If that nation against whom I pronounce turn from their evil, I repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. There's a great picture there of the Lord making a statement, making a uh, prediction. And like I say, like David and King Saul, would change his mind. And here, this is aimed at a nation, because Jeremiah was a prophet to the nations. And that nation could be Britain, could be America, all the nations that forget God are turned into hell, against whom I pronounced, turn from their evil. I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them, like Jonah and Nineveh. Jonah was a Jew, and the Lord said to Jonah, you will go and preach to the Ninevites, a people in Iraq, a stiff-necked people, a rebellious people, Gentiles. And Jonah, perhaps a very proud Jew, didn't want to go. And you know the rest, the Lord almost killed him. And eventually he went, preached to the people of Nineveh, and they got saved. They were told to repent, turn from the evil, and they did. If that nation anywhere in the world, but doctrinally, it'll be aimed at those in the surrounding districts of uh, Israel and also uh, nations around Iraq. If that nation against whom I pronounced turn from their evil, turn from their evil, turn from their wickedness, turn from their unbelief, I will repent of the evil. I will change my mind. 
that I thought to do unto them. And yes, the Lord does repent. You've just read it. 11. Now therefore go to speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I frame evil against you, and devise a device against you, or, and devise a device against you. Return ye now every one from his evil way, and make your ways and your doings good. Doctrinally, this is aimed at Israel. Doctrinally, Israel was in a covenant relationship with the Lord. The Gentile nations were not in a covenant relationship with the Lord. Return ye now every one from his evil way, Israel, and make your ways and your doings good. In other words, if you say you would do something, do it. Don't say you'll do something and not do it. Don't be a hypocrite. Let your yeas be yeas and your nays nays. You understand? And they said, verse 12, there is no hope, but we will walk after our own devices and we will everyone do the imagination of his evil heart. Thank you, Jehovah. But we've got a good thing going here. Thank you, Lord. Uh, we are quite happy being Muslims. Uh, thank you, Lord, but uh, we are quite happy going to Mass. Thank you, Lord, but we are quite happy being Jehovah's Witnesses, believing in two gods, big God, Jehovah, little God, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, but we are quite happy being Mormons and worshipping multiple gods. In fact, hoping to become a god ourselves. Which goes back to what I said at the beginning of this message, that if something works for you, you will stick with it. Whether it's true or not makes no difference. If it works for you, you will stick with it. Chapter 18 still. Chapter 18. Look at verse 23, please. Yet, Lord, thou knowest all their counsel against me to slay me. Forgive not their iniquity, neither blot out their sin from thy sight. But let them be overthrown before thee, Deal thus with them in the time of thine anger. Lord, destroy them. Burn them all up. Like these sons of Zebedee again. And yes, Christ would speak about his anger towards Judas, which is recorded in the Psalms. And he wanted Judas to be, or his seed, to be forever cast out. It's a very chilling piece of scripture. And David would also want vengeance towards his own enemies. But for the most part, for the most part, Jesus in the Gospels, the Apostles in the Gospels, and the Apostles in the Epistles were very merciful. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen would say the same thing, moments from being put to death. But here, Jeremiah is at the end of his tether. He wants judgment, and he wants to be burnt up. And I think for many people if they are honest with themselves, can relate to Jeremiah's uh, predicament. 2014. Cursed be the day wherein I was born. Let not the day wherein my mother bare me be blessed, like Job, like Elijah. When the best of the best were put to the test, when the best of the best were put on the spot, when the best of the best were put into situations which they really couldn't deal with. They would respond in different ways. And that goes back to the fact that such people are human. 
And it also goes back to the fact from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, how the Lord will never allow you to be tempted, tested, tried above that which you are able to do so. And he will find a way for you to escape. But the greatest sacrifice, probably from the Old Testament, would be Abraham, moments away from sacrificing Isaac. And he's got the knife in his hand. He's about to cut Isaac's throat, picture of God the Father, sacrificing God the Son. And he would have done it as well, knowing that God would have resurrected his son. And the Lord says to Abraham, stop what you're doing. I now know that you believe in me. And yet, fast forward two, three thousand years, maybe, uh, yeah, two thousand years, Adam to Abraham's two, Abraham to Christ's two, yeah. Fast forward two thousand years, Christ is hanging on the cross, he's naked, he is exhausted, he has been beaten black and blue, his friends have forsaken him, and they are mocking him, those that are standing around the cross. You've got the Romans casting lots for his clothing. And he's speaking to his father, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? No intervention. Because had Christ not died for the sins of the world, we couldn't be saved. And this goes back to the subject of how else could you be saved? Because when you die, if you're not saved, God will judge you by Christ's standard. And he will say this to you, that man over there never lied. That man over there never stole. That man over there never blasphemed. That man over there never committed adultery. That man over there never did this. That man over there never did that. That man over there fulfilled my law right down to the letter. Now tell me how great a person you are. Can you imagine that day? And you would just want to run for the hills. 27. O Lord, thou hast deceived me. And I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. Well, he wasn't deceived, but he felt he had been deceived. He felt grieved. And it comes down to this, that if you are a preacher, if you open your mouth for the Lord, like from spots such as this, or on street corners, or if you write articles, expect to be attacked. Expect to be mocked every day. I am in derision daily beside myself. Everyone mocketh me. And yet, when Daniel came to his, uh, came, you know, got to a stage where he couldn't go any further, came to his wit's end. When Daniel was praying, and praying until he prayed, excuse the flies, Gabriel finally arrives, and he says to Daniel, thou art greatly beloved. What a great thing to hear. Not just beloved, greatly beloved. So when you are being put through the mill, when you really feel that you're up against it, you are greatly beloved. 23, 25. For I have heard what the prophets said. They prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed. I have dreamed. You think of that well-known, somewhat corny line uh, from uh, Martin Luther King. I have dreamed. 
26, how long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yea, they are prophets of deceits of their own heart. Going back to the hearts being desperately wicked. 27, which think to cause my people to forget my name by their dreams, which they tell every man to his neighbor, as their fathers have forgotten me, as their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal. It's a relationship. It goes back to what I said earlier on, how Moses would speak about people coming in the last days to draw disciples away unto themselves. Paul would say the same from the book of Acts, going back to the Jehovah's Witnesses, going back to the Mormons. If you are unsure about a person's honesty or integrity, just check out what they say. Check out their pamphlets. Do they have the plan of salvation on such? Are they preaching about Jesus? If they're not, chuck them out. 28. The prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the shaft of the wheat, saith the Lord? Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord? And like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces, therefore behold, I am against the prophet, saith the Lord. That steal my words, every one from his neighbor. Not only do they steal his words, as I've just read to you, but they also cheapen his words. They say this, never mind what the scripture says, that was for then. You need to get with it. What is prophet such and such saying? What is a prophetess such and such saying? Does your church have the apostolic credentials? Do you know that Holy Mother Church supersedes the scriptures, you understand? Do you know that Holy Mother Church wrote the scriptures? That kind of nonsense. 31, behold, I'm against the prophets, saith the Lord, that use their tongues and say, he saith. Behold, I'm against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, and do tell them, and cause my people to err by their lies. Not someone else's people, the Lord's people. And by their likeness, yet I sent them not, nor commanded them. Therefore, they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. This has been the main theme thus far, and I've been on my feet for probably over an hour and 35 minutes now, so I will start to wrap this up shortly. The main theme in Jeremiah's day, along with Ezekiel and Isaiah as well, was to show up these false preachers for what they were, false teachers today for what they are. Nothing much has changed. It goes back one more time to wanting to draw people away from the Lord to be a part of one system. But go back to what I said a little while ago. Where were those churches before you got saved? Where were those uh, evangelists before you got saved? They had no time for you before you were saved, before I got saved. There were probably five or six churches in my town, evangelical, which would say they were born again, which would say they were Bible believers, and yet not one of those churches in my town, as a boy growing up, ever came knocking on my door or came up to me on the streets and said to me, do you know Jesus? Are you born again? And here I am 15 years later as a saved sinner and I can't think of anyone that has come up to me when I've been out and about on my travels and said, uh, do you know the Lord? I've seen people giving out pamphlets, not really tracks incidentally, but pamphlets to get people to join their system 
But when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to getting people born again, no, one's ever gone, no, one, no one has ever approached me. No one has ever said to me, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Look at 39, please. Therefore, behold, I, even I, will utterly forget you, and I will forsake you. And the city that I give you and your fathers and cast you out of my presence. And I will bring an everlasting reproach upon you and a perpetual shame which shall not be forgotten. Apostate Jews, forever cast out and forgotten. Which goes back to Noah. A family of eight being saved, which goes back to Lot and his two daughters. Just three people surviving, escaping Sodom and Gomorrah, which goes back to 120 in the upper room. Most people, most religious people, are not going to make it. 39, one more time. Therefore, behold, I, even I, would utterly forget you. And when that happens, you are through. And I will forsake you. And the city that I gave you and your fathers and cast you out of my presence, Christ will go out of the temple, Matthew 24. And that was the last time he would see the temple, picturing its eventual destruction, 70 AD. Verse 40, and I will bring an everlasting approach upon you and a perpetual shame which shall not be forgotten. Daniel speaks about this. Those in hell suffering with an everlasting shame, people weeping and wailing, gnashing their teeth. Why are we here, this awful place? How do we get here? But more importantly, how do we get out? And of course the answer is you don't get out. There are many roads into hell and yet not one out. 25.6, 25.6 And go not after other gods to serve them and to worship them and provoke me not to anger with the works of your hands and I will do you no hurt. Hope for repentant Israel. Time after time there was hope for those that would believe, that would turn back. Look at verse 8 from 25. Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, Because ye have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them again against this land. Will bring them against this land, excuse me, and against the inhabitants thereof, and against all these nations roundabouts, and will utterly destroy them, and make them an astonishment, and an hissing, perpetual desolations. He will bring Nebuchadnezzar, this Gentile king, and he will force the nations and his own people to submit to such. Which goes back to the sovereignty of the Lord. Which goes back to Europe during the 1930s and 40s. The Third Reich were just bulldozing their way through Europe. Nations were falling, armies were surrendering. And within two weeks, Poland fell, and thousands of Jews would find their way into different German concentration camps. If my text is clear to me this morning, and I, you know, if I understand this correctly, such was the will of the Lord. Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, starts in occupied Europe, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, could be Adolf Hitler, my servant, and will bring them against this land. Uh, could be Dachau, could be Sachsenhausen, could be uh, Auschwitz, 
and against the inhabitants thereof, and against all these nations round about. It wasn't just the Jews that got uh, rounded up. Gypsies, homosexuals, Christians, Jehovah, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, even Catholic priests and nuns were put into death camps because they wouldn't play ball. They were on the wrong side of their church, which signed a concordat with the Nazis. Back in the 1930s, Pope Pius XII signed a deal, signed a contract with them. And present at that signing was a future Pope called Montini, Pope Paul VI. And will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and an hissing of perpetual desolations. Six million Jews, perhaps, more, perhaps, died during the Second World War. And the Lord could have stopped it, but he didn't. Going back to his long suffering, going back to him waiting time after time for his people to turn back to him. And here's an interesting and somewhat distressing thought to consider. If you think about World War II, if you think about someone like uh, Oskar Schindler, a very brave man, a very uh, unusual man, called to do, uh, called to do an unusual uh, thing during uh, unusual times, a Catholic, incidentally, a womanizing, alcoholic Catholic, teamed up with Eamon uh, Goethe, or Eamon Goethe, two ways to pronounce his name, who was a Nazi in charge of one of the uh, concentration camps in Poland during the war. You've got two Germans, and Schinner was also a Nazi, incidentally, that came together during World War II, and around that time you have tens of thousands of Jews going through the death camps, not all killed straight away, some actually survived those camps, how they did so I don't know, and yet you've got Schindler, you've got Goethe, having parties together, socializing together, sharing the same mistress, and yet both would die Catholics, one would be uh, hung by the Russians after the war, the other would die in Frankfurt, early 70s, and would be buried in Jerusalem shortly afterwards, both unsaved. If that wasn't bad enough, you've got all those Jews going through these death camps, being tortured, perhaps raped, mocked, and eventually murdered by the Nazis, also perishing and going to hell. Jesus would say to the Jews from John chapter 8, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. So yes, we can commend someone like Schindler for saving over a thousand Jews and others around that time that also would do very brave acts during very difficult circumstances, and yet he was an unsaved man, Schindler, and Goethe was an unsaved man. In fact, the last words that Goethe would say, or Goth, pronounce as you will, uh, Hail Hitler. Not Jesus, save me, a wretched sinner, 
Hail Hitler, what a stupid thing to say. And he died as a Catholic and went straight to hell. And waiting there, of course, will be uh, Schindler many years later. And I'm sorry to say, and many Jews as well. This is how powerful this uh, type of a subject needs to be. You can't uh, water down the message of the gospel, which is repentance, faith in the Messiah. So verse 9, God does use unsaved people to judge his own people. Don't know why? But I do know why, of course, because none of us are good. Even at our best state, it's altogether vanity. We are altogether vanity. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's why I continue to be grieved when I watch some of the brethren on street corners around the world. Meaning well, no doubt, holding up the name of Jesus, okay, fair enough, and yet when they speak to people, they are very self-righteous, very arrogant, and truth be known, do more damage, more harm than good. 25, 29, please. For lo, I begin to bring evil on the city which is called by my name. And should ye be utterly unpunished, can you avoid it? My name, Jerusalem, I, being Jehovah, you shall not be unpunished. You won't avoid it. For I will call for sword upon all the inhabitants of the earth, saith the Lord of hosts. When Christ comes back, Revelation 19, which I'm currently working my way through every Sunday morning. Join me this Sunday, please, if you will, for part two of my look through uh, Revelation chapter 19. Christ comes back with a sword. Now David would use a sword back in the Old Testament, and his sword would take the head right off Goliath, just completely cut Goliath's head off. And Christ would do the same, literally, at the second coming. So Babylon and others are going to be punished. 29, they won't be able to avoid it. And yet, look at this, 26.13. Therefore now amend your ways and your doings, and obey the voice of the Lord your God. And the Lord will repent him of the evil that he hath pronounced against you. Why go to hell? Christ wept over Jerusalem. People go to hell because they won't receive Christ. People go to hell because they won't believe on him. People go to hell because they love their sin more than Christ. And once they arrive in hell, Revelation 29, then they pay for their sins. Lying, stealing, murdering, adultery, whoremongering, what have you. That's what that preacher should have said to that 11-year-old child, that such people who were never saved to begin with are going to be sent to hell to pay for their sins. Not, well, if you're still telling lies, little girl, maybe you're not saved. Therefore, now amend your ways and your doings. Doctrinally, Israel. Doctrinally, during the uh, Babylonian captivity. Spiritually, let's put this on an unsaved person today. And obey the voice of the Lord your God. And the Lord will repent him of the evil that he hath pronounced against you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ. But time after time, no thank you, Lord. We have our own way of doing things. We shan't have this man 
to reign over us. We know best, and therefore the Lord says, fine, you go into captivity, you never get out of such, and you die, and off you go into hell forever. Listen, hell won't just be full of really wicked people like tyrants, dictators, sadists, like Goth back in the Second World War. Hell will be full of just everyday people, nice old ladies, nice old men, women, men, just everyday folks. 